If you have your Bible, I want to, uh, this morning, share out of some things that have been stirring around in in my own head, and then uh, primarily, hopefully, out of the text for the week, which is out of Matthew 22, 34 to 40, and then out of Psalm 1. And these two texts, uh, the title I've given the message this morning is The Greatest of All. I want to read this passage first. I want to read it again from uh, the Passion Translation. And it reads this way, Matthew 22. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they called a meeting to discuss how to trap Jesus. Then one of them, a religious scholar, posed this question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to read through the Old Testament, um, you know, like a daily reading plan. But I'm, i got to tell you guys, you go through the, through the Deuteronical books, you know, it's pretty rough, man. There's a lot of laws in there. These are guys that are experts saying, okay, Jesus, Put your pen on the highest one. Jesus answered, love the Lord your God with every passion of your heart, with all the energy of your being and with every thought that is within you. This is the great and supreme commandment, and the second is like it in importance. You must love your friend in the same way you love yourself. Contained within these commandments to love, you will find all the meaning of the law and the prophets. That's, I, I really appreciate the way that that is phrased in that particular translation because I believe it puts its finger on something that we need to have a clarity about, which is, you know, the Bible isn't necessarily a flat book. In other words, the highest, the pinnacle of revelation in the Scripture is Jesus, right? It culminates in the revelation of Jesus on the cross. And in that revelation, and as Jesus is teaching, he says, here is the greatest. Here is what sums it together and sows it all together. The greatest of all. Um, so how does that tie in then with the Old Testament passage, which is Psalm 1. Again, I want to read this from the what's called the Anglicanized translation out of the common book of prayer, but it is Psalm 1. Happy are they who have walked in the count, not, not walked, not walked in the counsel of the wicked, nor lingered in the way of sinners or sat in the seat of the scornful. So he's describing a pathway. Their delight is in the law of the Lord. They meditate on his law day and night. Now, remember, the psalmist is talking about the law. Jesus just describes the pinnacle that wraps it all together. They are like trees planted by streams of water, bearing fruit in due season with leaves that do not wither. Everything they do will prosper. It's not so with the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand upright when judgment comes, nor sinner in the counsel of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked is doomed. And so we have this image from the psalmist that says there is a way of rootedness, and a path of righteousness. 
And Jesus points to it and says, here's what it looks like. I was reading a little bit this morning. I shared with my daughter as we're pulling down our drive. uh, There's reading now from the scientific world that says that trees now begin to flirt. They're realizing that trees come together in community and actually share with one another that they grow, and so this sense of stability and community on a path that Jesus says looks like love, that's the one that we want to call attention to. Um, On one of our trips that Denise and I have had the the privilege of going on, and I, I don't recall which one it was, we were in England, or in the UK, get to get it straight, um, and we had exchanged some cash for British sterling pounds. Now, if you've traveled abroad, one of the interesting things that you wind up seeing, and my, my, uh, my Dutch cousins find this to be so fascinating when they come, they're like, your bills are so boring. They're all the same. How do you tell which one is which? Because in other countries, the larger the bill, the larger the bill. Does that make sense? If it's a small bill, it's actually a smaller bill. They're not all the same size. We make them all the same size in the U.S. So there's just all kind of fascinating things. So we've got these British pounds that we didn't wind up using. And so we decided rather than exchanging them back into U.S. dollars, we would hang on to them. And, and it was two, two things that were in our minds. One was is kind of a, oh, man, that's cool to have. And the other one is it's our way of saying Staking our claim, we're going to come back someday. We had no plans. We didn't know how we'd do it. But maybe someday we'll come back, right, honey? That's sort of this little game that we play with ourselves. Okay, we'll hang on to it. So then what happens? Well, the death of the queen and then the coronation of King Charles. And somewhere along the way, Denise hears this report that in the U.K., they're having to, like, gather in and recirculate a whole bunch of printed money because after a certain time, those pounds wouldn't be yet taken at all. And I mean, we're not familiar with that. Like new president, new bills? No, 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 no. So um, it, it, I don't know. We, we heard about it and thought, oh, maybe we should pay attention to that. It wasn't a lot of money, but... Um, Somewhere along the way, we decided, well, go, we're going to go check. We went down to Chase Bank, and they said, sorry, we, don't, we can't take them. But if you're going to the U.K., you should be able to take them to the bank. So, okay. So we waited till our next trip. We had this long layover last year, uh, last May, in uh, London. And we come up to the exchange counter, and only to find out, they said, okay, what do you have? Okay, great, here we go. Oh, no, we don't take those. Those are the old ones. Okay, now what do we do? And after I began to ponder this, I found, I, just, I found it really interesting. Think about this. Here's a picture of life. I should have a dollar bill in my hand or something. I, man, here's a picture of life. We're holding in our hands these notes that men and women had given their life in exchange for, Right? I've worked for, I've earned, I've gained, and now it's worth nothing. (laughs) 
paper that at one time would have at least bought us some lunch or something or some lodging or whatever, and here it is. So it's worth nothing. Yeah, I'm so sorry, sir. Is there anything else we can do for you? Get me some money. Exchange this. You're telling me this is worthless? Um, I think we finally did get it. Actually, wound up finding some spot where we were able to get it changed. But, but where we had actually resolved, and it wasn't a lot of, I think it was like 40 pounds or something like that. It wasn't a lot. Anyway, pardon me? Oh, it was 20. So like I said, it wasn't a lot. It was, we're not going to go into bankruptcy or anything. You know? But the point is, I thought, this is a really fascinating paper that at one time they said this is worth something is now worth less. Now, this last week, I want you to stay with me. Last week, Denise and I, again, were out of town, and we're, we're sharing dinner with a couple we had just met. I said, you want to, I want to eat together. We just kind of struck up some conversation. He'd been in ministry at some point, and we were sharing back and forth. And he, he was most of his career in IT and had sold a, an IT business that he had built up. And uh, after exchanging with him, realized, oh, you're not working for money anymore. You must have sold that fairly well. Then found out his wife had been in also in information technology field and that she had, according to her testimony, she had just accepted her final job assignment with a large corporation in, I think, what's, is it Columbus? Is that the big town? In the, yeah, Columbus. Um, and she, and the, the, the final job assignment is helping this corporation integrate generative artificial intelligence into their company. And I said, oh, now that's interesting. Tell me more. And so, uh, you know, began to start to ask some different questions. She started saying some things, some that were quite assuring, saying, you know, artificial intelligence can only, you know, generate out of a basis of information that it already has. Now, here's what's going to be scary is if somebody feeds that, false information, and that's possible. So there need to be guidelines. I said, yeah, that is a little scary. But then, then she went on to talk about it. I said, boy, you know, this is all sort of, ugh. she said, oh, but you do realize we've all been groomed for this with that little device right there called your smartphone. And, and she tried to assure me, you know, not all of it's bad, but then she made a statement and I asked her a little bit more about it, but it woke me up later in the night. Here was, uh, if I'm going to try to phrase the statement the way that she said it. She said, here's what's true about your phone. Most of us are unaware of the commodity that you are giving away without even knowing it. And I said, what? And she said, oh, please understand, I'm not talking about your age or where you live, most companies already know that. What people are giving away are their likes and their dislikes. And the information that, that becomes actually a commodity now that business is purchasing and shaping their business around. And again, I'm like, wow, 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 okay, interesting conversation. Somewhere in the middle of the night, this wording hit me in the middle of the night. Business understands the value of your time, attention, and affections more than you do. Let me repeat this in another way. 
business knows your worth, the worth of your presence, many times more than you do. Now, again, I'm thinking of this in the context of a, as a Jesus follower. How many times do I live not valuing and understanding the worth of what I bring into the room? And then watch. That, those likes that, that, that the business world begins to recognize, that's what shapes what we're invited to consume because we're a, a culture of consumption. And it drives the things that they invite us to in our, our thinking so that it would be conformed to a certain sort of thinking. And eventually it does become controlling. There it is, a little bit scary. Values not driven by the kingdom of God, but by the world around us that's cashing in on our desires. And as I said earlier, many times, ones that we're not even paying enough attention to. The most valuable commodity of our life, given in exchange for what Jesus said in the end, Moth and rust destroy, and thieves could break in and steal. Worthless paper. So these are kind of, okay, these are the thoughts rolling around in my brain. And I come to this text, I'm like, oh. Jesus comes to a world ruled not dissimilar to the world that we're in. Please understand this. He lives in a world that is dominated by certain ideas that say, in order to have influence, we need more money, capital, influence of capital. We need the right ruler. We need, a, we need the right education. We need the right freedoms. And yet Jesus comes into this world with a radical transforming proclamation, the kingdom of God is here. And guess what? It will not be driven by those systems. Consumption, conformity, control. It, that we would be transformed in the way that we think is the way that Paul words that. Jesus, do we need... Do we need to take over the places of influence in the culture? Surely we do. And there's a lot of passion about that today, isn't there? I got into an interesting exchange even this week with someone about that. And, and is it important that Christians live as Christians in the marketplace? Yes. Sure. But that which brings change into the culture is not you somehow having power over it, but the same way that Jesus brought change. He said, this is the way that it will come, by taking up a cross. Jesus, do we need more, more capital, more money? Do we need another ruler? Do we need another education system? More freedoms? I mean, you get my point. In the end, it's, it's just worthless currency. Why is that? Because Jesus comes onto planet Earth in the midst of all those systems, and he says, um, I know what you are worth. 
Watch this. Follow this train of thought. He knows. So what is he doing? He's sitting with people that everybody walked by. The leper, the blind beggar, the prostitute. I know what you are worth. I do. I know the power of a flourishing human life lived in love. I've come that you would actually have that life. Not really that worried about who's in the post of Caesar. You see, the most transformative commodity on earth, love, This treasure in jars of clay that the surpassing glory is from God and not ourselves to reveal the glory. Watch, just follow this thought. The glory and the intelligence of another age. I'll give you the spirit and he'll inform you. In the end, it will be seen as the holy revolution that it really is. No greater commandment. Love. And beloved, this is good news. Uh, this, I say this last week, Denise and I got back on Tuesday, so I'm referring to the week before, but we took some reading material along with us, and uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll bag on myself and brag on my wife, but, you know, she brought like three massive books and got them done really fast. So she picked up my little book that I had only made it, like I was already halfway through it when I brought it with me, and she finished it before I did. But anyway, in the book I was reading, Ancient Echoes, uh, Walter Brueggemann, he painted something in that book that I think relates to these thoughts that I'm trying to share about right now. And, and hopefully I, I'll be able to kind of connect the dots and wrap this up. But he pointed to the Exodus, and, and one of the things that he pointed to in that book, he said, we live in a world that has accepted the idea and invites us to embrace it that inequality is just normal. Okay? Just the way it is. And it, that's rooted in the economic systems. It's rooted in all kinds of different systems. So he, he points to the exodus, and he expounded on a way and, and gave it some thoughts that I want to invite us to think about because it's really, he took, God says, I took a people who were not a people and I made them a people. Now, oftentimes we would translate that idea that here they were as slaves and God taught them how to be big and powerful. Let's think about this for a moment. In the Exodus, the Israelites are experiencing more than an exodus from slavery of their bodies, but an exodus of imagination. And here's what I'm trying to get at. They're leaving Egypt. As they're leaving Egypt, two things were happening that happened when they left Egypt. One was they marched out in martial array. So when they're leaving Egypt, what they did, God didn't tell them they had to do that, but that's what they did because here, why is that? Because if you're big and you're powerful, you look like you got a big old army. And, and by the way, they ask for silver and gold as they're leaving. So they've got the goods, and they look powerful, and they're marching out. Look at us. We're going to be as big and bad as you. Three days later, they're out of water, and they're dying. God provides water. Thirty days after that, they're, they, they, they have no food. 
and they find themselves in a place, the wilderness, that their imagination is saying, oh, my goodness, I never thought, wait, wait, I thought we were going to go from Egypt to another place that looked a little bit like that, and there's nothing here. And so the wilderness begins to inform them about some things. They're, they, they're, they're looking at the wilderness. I've got, nothing, I've got nothing to drink. I've got nothing to eat. And there's lack of resources. So they're convinced of something. God isn't here. So it comes out of their mouth what their imagination is. At least in Egypt, we had food, right? So their best imagination for provision is that awful system of inequality in Egypt. Their best imagination for their lack is Pharaoh's temple. Now, before we look at them and go, what was wrong with you? I wonder how many times my brain goes in that same train that my best imagination for the lack in my life. See, the vision of God's presence at, at its best in their mind was, well, we'll be a little bigger, badder army than Pharaoh's army. We'll, we'll have Pharaoh's excess because, you remember, Pharaoh used food not to meet the needs of people, but he used it for inequality as a power system. So they had... The only, way, the only thing going around in their mind is we're going to duplicate the system that we're familiar with so at least we will survive. There's no way we can survive in the desert, at least as I'm seeing it, because remember this? When they're in Egypt, all the gods of Egypt? So their imagination about God, Yahweh, is that he looked like the gods of Egypt. This shows up a little bit later when they said to Aaron, make us a calf. It isn't because they were drinking something weird. It's because that was the image in their mind. And by the way, Aaron names it Yahweh. It's in the scripture. So here they are in lack and the feeling of abandonment. And all they could see was what was not there. So it turns out that their best vision for leaving slavery was just a little bit better version of Egypt. Israel's faith was for the food like they'd had in Egypt. God comes to confront that imagination with something they've never seen or experienced. Bread? Coming out of the heavens? And it's not going to be something that I get to buy and sell? It's just there to satisfy me at no cost? And here comes the shock to their imagination. Turns out the desert is the natural habitat of Yahweh. He could be there. It's not Pharaoh's court, it's the wilderness, you're there. It's occupied territory, not a barren wasteland. Turns out that the occupation of God means more than just a hope of survival, getting by, but actually a life-giving space. 
So again, as we begin to wrap our brains around this for a minute, oh, so God, what you're revealing is that as you lead your people, you meet their needs and you satisfy them and you live with them. God is able to meet them and he's meeting them in equality. You don't get to have five buckets and me one and that's just okay. God just meets the need of their lives. Now, here's what I'm trying to get at. In that picture of God taking his people into the wilderness, the life of true faith, beloved, is not a shiny version of the temples of Pharaoh. And the prosperity gospel that circulates today, that's one bad example, but that's what it is. That's not... That, are, you, are you guys tracking with what I'm trying to share right now? Okay. So the kingdom that Jesus comes to reveal, it doesn't operate like the kingdoms of the world, meaning this. It doesn't have to have monetary systems. It doesn't need bullets, guns, paper notes, beans. The cross transcends time and space to reveal something that man so much needs, the revelation of God's compassion and his loving kindness that's able to transform. The kingdom comes to meet us equally and to transform us so that Jesus says to this woman caught in sin, go and sin no more, meaning this, can we just get a little broader version of sin, not just that you missed the mark, but that, that you're not thriving as a human, but guess what? You can I've come that you would have life. So the greatest commandment is not just a good idea that in Jesus says, you know, let's go out and be nice to each other. It is the center of the work of his kingdom. It's about inhabiting our life in such a way with faith in the midst of what often feels like a wilderness, leaving us longing for what? The courts of Pharaoh. I, want, I need some kind of power. I need something because I feel my lack. But, but here I am in the wilderness, in the midst of my lack, but I'm surrendering to the power of the love of God to transform me and my neighbor. Even in a world filled with fear and anxiety, inequality, violence, war, and every violation of human flourishing, that world, yes, That wilderness can bear fruit? Yes, if lived by the law of another kingdom. And Jesus, remember, he enunciates what, those, what it actually looks like, where, where the poor and the meek, the pure in heart, those who lament, they inherit what they didn't get or gain. Right? Amen? Those who've rejected the laws of consumption and greed that lead to a false life but have surrendered to God's provision. You're man, oh God, but you said, here it is, love. Live, surrender to this, and something happens that, that allows us, your manna, to come in a way, in a place that I hadn't imagined. Because the goal of this kingdom has always been that we would flourish as human beings. 
not just to be saved of sin, but to flourish. I've come that you would have life. So what the world of Egypt, the world of the West, let's just bring it to today, has commoditized, God shares freely. You've given me everything that I need for life, for godliness. God, then what do you value? I've shown you, O oh man, what's good. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. St. Augustine said this at one time. He said, what is it that I love when I say I love God? It's really important. Teacher, which commandment's the greatest? Love the Lord your God with every passion of your heart, with every energy of your being, with every thought that is within you. This is the great and supreme commandment. What if we simply took a moment and allowed our imagination, our mind, to consider the number of things that concern us individually, the relationships that are causing me concern right now, the, the ones that weigh me down as I think about what's happening in the world? We just said, Lord, you can fill and provide and reveal yourself in the wilderness that I'm in. So, Lord, how do I bring that into existence? The second is like in importance. You must love your friend, your neighbor, in the same way you love yourself. Contained within these commandments to love you will find all the meaning of the law and the prophets. Philosopher John Caputo said this, the only measure of love is love without measure. I think it's a good statement. Jesus comes into a world to proclaim the radical transforming work of the kingdom of God on earth, not driven by the power of consumption, conformity, control, Jesus, do we need do we need a, a place of influence? Seems like we do. Jesus, Peter picks up the sword. Put that away. Jesus, we need another ruler. Are you at this time going to restore the king? Who's going to sit at the right or the left? It's all worthless paper. But I know what you are worth. I know the worth that comes when you surrender to this command as a flourishing human being and live in love. Because the most transformative commodity of heaven upon the earth is love. This treasure in jars of clay that reveals the glory and the intelligence of another age, it will in the end be seen as the holy revelation and holy revolution that it actually is. No greater commandment. Love. Beloved, right here in our wilderness, that's good news. Amen? I want to invite us this morning to respond in praying this simple prayer together. Would you stand with me? And those of you on the call, if you've got something to share in communion with us, I so appreciate all y'all. see a number of you guys on the call this morning. Good to have all of you. Um, we want to close with this prayer together. Let's pray this prayer. 
Almighty God, your Son has shown us how to love one another. May our love for you overflow into joyous service and be a healing witness to our neighbors through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.